So yes, it's hard to believe uh, that uh, 50 years ago, 50 years ago, geez, you know, don't you remember when 50 was like, wow, that was like someday I'll be 50 years old. Now it's like, you can go back and remember the day, you know what I'm saying? Anyway, it was a glorious day for me and my family. And, uh, and, and, and you know, something that is very poignant, I think, it is great to be living in an era Whereas a Messianic Jewish person, uh, to have that continuity. Because the reality is, is that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that if a Jewish person came to believe in Yeshua, they were cut, you're cut off. Cut off from anything Jewish, you know? And even to this day in some circles, you know, uh, now you're, uh, you know, you believe in, in Yeshua, you believe in Jesus, you're a Christian, you don't need any of that Jewish stuff anymore. You know, and how sad that is to, uh, to lose that continuity. Uh, and, uh, you know, think about it. With that attitude, what if all the Jewish people in the world came to know the Lord and, and, uh, and had to uh, relinquish any kind of Jewish uh, practice or identity? There'd be no more Jews, uh, you know? Uh, and so uh, it's very important, and I'm very thankful to be part of a you know, part of a community, part of a congregation that values those things, you know, in Yeshua, but, but values uh, a Jewish way of life, Jewish tradition, uh, without uh, putting a, a straitjacket on, you know, and recognize that even within that, there are varieties of ways of articulating and, and of living that out, but yet the value of it. And as we said last week, that's part of Hanukkah, right? Uh, the value of Jewish identity and Jewish worship. That's what the Maccabees were all about. That's what they fought for. It's what they died for. And uh, we could learn a great lesson about dedication, uh, which we talked about uh, last week. All right. Well, it is still Hanukkah. Uh, you know, that's the one thing about Hanukkah. It goes for a while, kind of like Sukkot and Passover, right? So... <clears throat> Here, of course, is, uh, I believe this, this uh, belongs to Jeff and Andrea, right? I believe so. And what a nice uh, Hanukkah menorah. What's really nice about it, it's big and everybody can see it. It serves as a very nice uh, little teaching tool, right? So remember the Shamish candle right here, right? And we light with the match the Shamish candle. And we take the Shamish candle and light all the others. And remember... Uh, so tonight is, is night seven. We'll go all the way to here, right? Uh, and, uh, and we light that we, we, we put them in uh, right to left. We go right to left, but we light them left to right, right? So, you know, coming or going, we're lighting those candles. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you know this, but, you know, in the Talmud, there was a discussion between Hillel and Shammai about which way to, which way to do the candles. I don't know if you're aware of that. There is no one way in the Jewish world, there is no one way to do just about anything. Okay? So, uh, you know, Shammai said, start with all the candles lit and then go down to one. Okay? And uh, his rationale was uh, uh, Hanukkah is kind of like Sukkot. And uh, when they did all the offering, the 70 offerings on Sukkot, they would, each day was less and less and less. So do, you know, light the candles uh, uh, based on uh, starting with, with all the days ahead of you and then, you know, go down to one. But Hillel, who always wins, right, said, no, we start with one and go to eight so that we can, like, look forward to, uh, to the light and more light, you know, so, like sort of having a vision for the future. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, and I hope you're lighting your Hanukkah menorah. So tonight, don't forget to bring your, your uh, Hanukkah menorah uh, candles and a way to light them, okay? So uh, that is very, very important. Okay, so today, well, I, I'll start with last week as I usually do, right? So we looked at the history of Hanukkah last week, uh, and uh, we uh, uh, talked there about the, the value you know, of, uh, of uh, Jewish identity and, and dedication. And we talked about how Hanukkah, in the story of Hanukkah, in the, in the Maccabees, uh, you read a lot about uh, uh, Kiddush Hashem, a martyrdom, 
Uh, and that's a big theme in the Maccabees of, of martyrdom and, and dying uh, with the words of Torah on the lips, right? Uh, and so we talked about that, and then we, we related that to Yeshua, uh, who served as the model of Kedush Hashem, right? And the wonderful thing is, is you know, horizontally, he was like he was a martyr, but he rose from the dead, you know? He rose from the dead, defeating uh, sin, sin and death. Uh, and he himself talked a lot about bearing the cross, right? Dying to self, you know, and all of that. Uh, and having that kind of dedication. And we looked at Paul and when he says, you know, to live as Messiah and to die as gain, right? Uh, that kind of dedication to God, that kind of zeal for the Lord, right? So we talked uh, about that. Uh, and I would suggest to us, just as a little aside, you know, the story of the Maccabees takes place about 150 years before Yeshua. 160 years, approximately, before Yeshua. Uh, and we know, we, we mentioned this last week also, that in the Gospel of John, we know that, that Hanukkah was, uh, was a celebration in that day, and that Yeshua celebrated it. Here, he was in Jerusalem for it, right? Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, I would suggest, that this is just an observation, perhaps, that the apostles perhaps had sort of like uh, the, the Maccabees over their shoulder, you know, in their zeal, in their situation, especially in those early chapters of, of Acts. And when you read, uh, if you ever have the opportunity to read especially First and Second Maccabees, it's not in the Bible, it's apocryphal, but, but it does give us a, a, a history. It's where the history, because how we know about Hanukkah, it's how we know about Hanukkah, okay? Uh, that you can see some similarities. Uh, like you will find, like we mentioned one where Mattathias says, we're not going to turn to the right or to the left. We're going to be obedient. We're going, you know, and we're going to stay the course and, you know, that kind of thing. It reminds you of passages in the Brit Hadashah. You, you know, so it's just kind of interesting when we really place uh, new covenant history in a context that is Jewish and what was going on in the Jewish world, and what had taken place in the Jewish world. So, so last week we talked about that. We talked about that kind of dedication and, and zeal for the Lord. So today, of course, we're going to continue a little bit of that, but we want to look at it from a little bit of a different angle, a little bit of a different angle, right? Uh, about the, uh, the emphasis that this was all due to the hand of God, that this uh, was due to the hand of God. You know, and of course, as uh, Ellen read in the Haftorah portion, right, especially for Hanukkah, uh, different than what my Haftorah portion was, uh, which I would have done, but that's okay. So anyway, in Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, had to do with rebuilding the temple, the temple that was desecrated, the temple that was rededicated, you know? that even the building of it seemed insurmountable, right? But clearly, uh, Zerubbabel was encouraged by this word that it's not about how powerful and how big and how strong, but by the power of God and the will of God, you know? And that real, the reason that that's the Haftorah is because, for Hanukkah is because that really is a theme of, uh, you know, of Hanukkah. So today we want to talk about this issue of celebrating the providence of God, celebrating the hand of God uh, bringing the victory at a very unusual time to be celebrating something like that uh, in, uh, in Jewish history. Uh, and then, uh, believe it or not, it fits right into right where we are, right there uh, in Acts uh, chapter 4. Well, you know, we have said that uh, the story of the oil lasting for eight days is only found in one place, Right? It's only found in the Talmud. It is not in the in, in first and second Maccabees, right? But it is in the Talmud. Uh, and so, you know, uh, so I was thinking about that this week. And when I say that, I don't mean to discredit it, but it is a very interesting observation because what it tells us is, is that the later rabbis had something in particular that they wanted to emphasize, not just the not just this nationalistic victory. 
which is great, <laughs> you know, and it's wonderful. Um, but they wanted to emphasize something else, and that is indeed, of course, the miracle, what God did during that time. So I thought I would just read a couple of, uh, a little bit here. You know, in, uh, it's in, uh, they track, it's in Shabbat, uh, 21b, for those of you that are interested, where uh, it talks about Hanukkah, but it, but the subject isn't really Hanukkah. This is this is great. So I'll just tell you in maybe hopefully 30 seconds. This is how the Talmud works. There are page after page after page about lighting candles, just candles, uh, lighting Shabbat candles, uh, holiday candles, candles in the temple, the kind of wax to or use, or the oil, of course, to use, and the wick, and how you make a wick, and all that. So then it sort of segues into Hanukkah. Uh, and uh, we read some interesting things. Like, for example, do you know that according to the Talmud, you're supposed to have the menorah outside? You know that? You're supposed to put the menorah outside, right? So, you know, in the Middle East, you could do that in December, you know? Uh, and the reason for that is the menorah has only one purpose, and it is to testify of the miracle that took place. And so you shouldn't really put it inside. But if you have to put it inside, make sure that you're not using it for any other purpose, like, like reading, for example, right? Well, you know, in those days, that's how they, they used candles for everything and oil. Candles, they didn't use candles. They didn't have candles. They, you know, they used oil for everything, right? To, to, for, for light. But you're not supposed to use the Hanukkah menorah for the purpose of lighting up a room. Because it, according to the Talmud, it denigrates the, 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 the whole purpose of the testimony. So you have, then you have the story of Hillel and Shammai, which way you light the candles and all that. But then you do have, uh, you do have this. Okay. I, what is the reason for the Yom Tov of Hanukkah? Now this is a little, this is annotated, so that way you, have, you get the extra words so we can make like real sentences. Okay. On account of which miracle did the rabbis establish it? It is as the rabbis taught in a beresa. A beresa is like uh, a rabbinic uh, passage outside of the Talmud. It's like an extra from somewhere else, basically. Uh, then it says, on the 25th day of Kislev, the days of Hanukkah commence. They are eight days uh, in all, on which it is not permitted to eulogize or to fast. For when the Syrian Greeks entered the sanctuary... They contaminated all the flasks of oil that were in the sanctuary. And when the royal Hasmonean house gained the upper hand and vanquished them, the Hasmonean searched the temple area and found one flask of oil that was lying out of sight with the Kohen, uh, with the Kohen Gadol seal still intact. In other words, it was like kosher oil. There was one flask. And it contained only enough oil to kindle the menorah for one day. However, a miracle was performed with the oil, and they kindled the lights of the menorah with it for eight days, until other ritually pure oil could be obtained. Recognizing that the miracle had eternal implications, in the following year the Hasmoneans and the Sanhedrin established and rendered these eight days permanent festival days with respect to the recital of Hallel and uh, Thanksgiving. And so there's an emphasis on the miracle, the, the miracle uh, that, uh, that took place. And, and so today, uh, we, uh, uh, we really do focus, I mean, in, in Judaism, there's a, a great focus on, on the fact that God did it, and the light represents, of course, the presence of God, just like the Ner Tamid, you know, represents the presence of God. The Shamish candle the presence of God. Uh, uh, and, and it is kind of interesting when you look at uh, the story of Hanukkah uh, in, light of the, uh, in light of the Torah itself, that light and fire and burning uh, plays a very important role, right? When Moses uh, comes upon the burning bush, he sees that this is the presence of God is here and he receives his calling, right? And that, of course points us to uh, Sinai. And we read in Exodus chapter 19 that the mountain was on fire because God was present there. 
It wasn't because, you know, it's like Southern California uh, and you have, uh, you know, wildfires going on in, in the mountains. No, this was like, this came from God. This was fire from God, you know? Uh, and so we have in the Talmud uh, the, uh, the oil lasting for eight days to say God was present. God made it happen, you know? Uh, and, and it kind of ties together, uh, in, in a sense, you know, the calling of, of Israel, uh, uh, the calling of this way of life, uh, the calling uh, of this uh, worship. And then, of course, there, there are actually all kinds of mirror images of Hanukkah and uh, the Exodus, which is kind of far, you, you can read it yourself, uh, you know, elsewhere. Uh, but you know that there is a savior who comes, right? There's, there's someone who comes and saves the day. Moses saves the day, right? Uh, a Levite, right? Just like uh, Matityahu, just like uh, Mattathias, right? Uh, who comes and saves the day. Uh, he and his sons, uh, a, a, a Levite. And so you can see sort of, you know, the, the Jews were oppressed by the Greco-Syrians, uh, and they're oppressed in Egypt. Moses brings them out. Mattathias and his five sons and company, uh, you know, save uh, uh, the day. Uh, and so it's, you know, a kind of interesting uh, to see. In fact, you know, in the, um, in the liturgy, in, in the Siddur, uh, during Hanukkah, we sing about the great miracle. We sing it in the Amidah. We sing it and we say it. There's this long paragraph that's preceded by a beginning paragraph. And uh, perhaps some of you are, uh, are familiar with it. It goes like this. Al-ha-nisim v'al-ha-purkan v'al-ha-givurot v'al-tishuot v'al-ha-niflaot v'al-nechamot v'al-ham-chamot Right? For the miracles, we, was what we're th- we come, it comes right after we gratefully thank you. Modi manach nulach, you know, there's a paragraph. And then it says, in addition, we thank you for the miracles and for the salvation and for the mighty deeds and for the victories and the wonders and the consolations and the battles which you performed for our forefathers in those days and at that time. And then there's a longer paragraph, and I'll just read the very beginning of it. It says, In the days of Matisyahu, son of Yochanan, the high priest, the Hasmonean, and his sons, when the wicked Greek kingdom arose against your people Israel to make them forget your Torah and compel them to stray from the statutes of your will, you and your great mercy stood up for them, in the time of their distress, you took their grievance, judged their claim, and avenged their wrong. And then it goes on in glorious uh, language. You know, something that is interesting in this, what the rabbis were bringing out, is not only uh, the fact that, the, um, uh, that a great miracle happened, and that God was present, but you see, unlike other times, other persecutions of the Jewish people, I, the... Uh, Antiochus and the Greco-Syrians, they did not have any kind of interest in annihilating the Jews. They, they didn't want to kill all the Jewish people. They didn't. They wanted uh, the Jewish people to practice Hellenism. They wanted the Jewish people to not be unique in their worship, not be unique in their people. That's why they forbade circumcision. And horrific things happen when you try to circumcise a, a baby boy. Hor- horrible thing. Uh, and, and that is, uh, and that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to basically do away with the uniqueness of the God of Israel and the worship of the God of Israel. See, so, so what the rabbis are bringing out is like a real spiritual element that, that the story of Hanukkah is about not as much the salvation of the people as it is the salvation of the faith, the salvation of the way of life, the salvation of the Torah. And when you read in First and Second Maccabees about it, it speaks a lot about, you know, focusing on the Torah, focusing on the Torah. And we will, uh, you know, we'll die rather than uh, desecrate, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the temple. 
Uh, and so uh, there is a lot of emphasis uh, on this. So I think that, you know, uh, the, the light is very important and to recognize that. And of course, uh, needless to say, but of course I'll say it, and I'll say it again at the very end, but I'll say it now in case you think, oh, he's not going to say it. Uh, you know, uh, and that is, of course, you know, uh, 160 some odd years later comes Yeshua, the, the true light, indeed, the light of the world, right? And no coincidence that we read in Acts chapter 2 about tongues of fire when the Ruach was poured out. Fire at Sinai. Fire on that Shavuot day. You know, the presence of God. And those speeches that Peter is giving is explaining the presence of God uniquely in the risen and ascended Messiah. See? And so it all kind of ties, uh, ties together. Now, something else that is uh, very interesting here is that uh, uh, in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 14, it's not just that, you know, it's a reminder of a great event in Exodus, the, uh, the story of Hanukkah, but the story of being outnumbered and oppressed is also a very important part of it. So we're familiar in Exodus chapter 14 when the Jewish people come out of Egypt and they come to this wall of water, right? Uh, that they think, ah, oh, we came out for nothing. They're going to, what, there was, what, we didn't want, you wanted to take us out here to die instead of dying in Egypt? Yeah, that's what the people were saying. So we read in Exodus chapter 14, right, this, this, uh, these famous words. Moses says uh, in verse 13, Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. So then it, then it, it, it tells the story of Moses with his staff and raising his hands. But it is interesting that Moses tells the people, don't fear, God will fight the battle, but it doesn't mean you like stick your head in the sand. You gotta keep walking. You gotta keep going, right? And so, like the Maccabees, uh, this trust that God had his hand on them, but they had to fight the battle, right? They couldn't sit back. And it's very interesting that in, in 1st Maccabees, chapter, uh, 3, of course, the bulk of the, the bulk of the story is after Mattathias dies actually. And you have Judah and his brothers, you know, making their way uh, to uh, Jerusalem. Okay, so here is the beginning of the battle. And the, uh, the Maccabees are totally outnumbered, right? It's like th there was no way this was going to work, right? They're totally outnumbered. So it says here about Judah, Maccabee, when he approached the ascent of Beth Haran, Judas went out to meet him with a small company, meeting the uh, Sarai, the, uh, the other leader of the opposition. But when they saw the army coming to meet them, they said to Judas, how can we, few as we are, fight against so great and so strong a multitude? And we are faint, for we have eaten nothing uh, today. Judas replied, it is easy for many to be hemmed in by a few, for in the sight of heaven there is no difference between saving by many or a few, meaning it doesn't matter. God is going to win the battle whether we're outnumbered or whether we're outnumbering them, whatever it is. It is not on the size of the army that victory in battle depends, but strength comes from heaven. Heaven here is a euphemism for God. Okay? Very much like in the Brit Harashah, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. There's a lot of relationship. Very helpful in understanding. They come against us in great insolence and lawlessness to destroy us and our wives and our children and to despoil us. But we fight for our lives and our laws. He himself, God himself, will crush them before us. As for you, do not be afraid of them. So it's interesting. I read something this week. Uh, that uh, shed some light on something very interesting. When it says here, uh, but when they saw the army coming to meet them, they said to Judas, 
How can we, few as we are, fight against so great and so strong a multitude? Okay. I, and then Judas replies, It is easy for many to be hemmed in by a few. For in the sight of heaven there is no difference between saving by many or by a few. So it's kind of interesting that uh, that phrase is used in the Bible. And it is used in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 6. 1 Samuel chapter 6, 14, verse 6. In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, in verse 6. And this is where Saul and Jonathan are fighting the Philistines. And they're greatly outnumbered, right? Greatly outnumbered. And it's interesting, isn't it, that it says in Maccabees that they had not eaten, right? So isn't it kind of interesting that Saul told everyone not to eat, you know, uh, for this battle? That's part of the story. But the main thing is, is how Judas responds here, whether it's many or a few. So in 1 Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan is talking to his servant, who's wor you know, very worried. And Jonathan says, come, let us cross over to do the garrison of these uncircumcised. To the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by a few. And so, you know, it's interesting that Judas, uh, you know, is he relating uh, the story of uh, Jonathan uh, and his bravery to this? The point being is that Maccabees points back to these great moments in, in biblical history where we were outnumbered tremendously, but where there was faith and trust in God to get the victory. Uh, and so uh, we see here that it, it is indeed God who gets the victory. One other thing I wanted to mention here, and that is... In 2 Maccabees, which talks much more about the establishment of uh, the holiday and, and the meaning of uh, the uh, dedication and all of that, uh, you have this amazing little paragraph in 2 Maccabees 2, beginning in verse 16, about how they viewed this victory. It's fascinating. Since, therefore, we are about to celebrate the purification, we write to you, writing to, like, to all the, the people. Will you therefore please keep the days? It is God who has saved all his people and has returned the inheritance to all and the kingship and the priesthood and the consecration as he promised through the law. We have hope in God that he will... Listen to this. We have hope in God that he will soon have mercy on us and will gather us from everywhere under heaven into his holy place, for he has rescued us from great evils and has purified the place. They viewed their victory, the purification of the temple, and the celebration of it as like a precursor of the coming of the Messiah, of, you know, Jews coming from around the world to, you know, to fulfill what the prophets uh, talked about. They had that kind of a profound understanding of the great miracle that God did uh, by giving them uh, that victory. So it's important to understand and know, and I mentioned it last time, and I'm just going to say it in a few sentences, that really it's kind of a sad story because after this great victory, it was all downhill after that. I mean, the, uh, the Maccabees, the next generation of Maccabees basically embraced Hellenism, a, Hellen a Hellenist way of life, right? Uh, and uh, ultimately, uh, you had uh, uh, leadership uh, being consolidated in John Hyrcanus, who was a Maccabee, uh, and he was a, uh, a, you know, a co very controversial figure the Perushim, the Pharisees, did not like him because he proclaimed himself to be king. King. Well, there can only be one king, right? Uh, and that's the Messiah. And so he, he consolidated the priesthood and the kingship unto himself, right? Well, ultimately, you know, the people really didn't like, didn't like them. And there's some really humorous stories about throwing etrogs at the, 
at the priests and all that. So that's another story. We'll save that. I tell that sometimes on Purim, right? I, but so what happens is, by the time you get almost to the day, time of the birth of the Messiah, the, the Romans, basically, the, the Maccabees made a deal with the Romans. And it was like, you know, making a deal with the devil. What ends up happening is, they think that there's going to be peace. And that the Hasmonean dynasty, which is what the Maccabees became known as, uh, that they would rule. And that the Romans would leave them alone. But that was not to be. And so they raised up Herod. You know, Herod the Great, right? And he was the ruler over uh, Judea. And he was a very insecure ruler. So what he did is, he, you know, he had... He was, he was declared the ruler, but he was kind of looking over his shoulder, you know, at those Hasmoneans uh, and at the, the remnants of the Maccabees. So what he does is the first thing he does, he marries in, and then he proceeds to kill just about everybody, okay? Uh, he kills all the relatives, right? That's one way of dealing with things, all right? Uh, and, uh, and anyone who would be a threat to him, this is what he was afraid of, he would kill. Doesn't it make sense a little bit that when he hears about a king born of, of the Jews, that he goes and decides to kill all the baby boys? Isn't that kind of interesting? It kind of fits very well into that history, you know? Uh, and so basically, it's kind of the end of the Maccabees, you know, with, uh, with uh, Herod, Herod the Great. Uh, but the time <clears throat> is still... Very much, uh, very much full of debauchery, Hellenism, and so on. And you know, by the, by the names of the, uh, the names of the high priests, Caiaphas, Annas, and so on. You know, we don't have Shlomo. Uh, you don't have Yaakov, the, the, you know, the, uh, the uh, high priest, right? Uh, and so when Yeshua comes, he's coming at a very dark time. It's almost the end. In Jewish history, Basically, the way it's viewed, just in Jewish history, this is the end of the Second Temple period. And things are getting worse and worse and worse, and then you have the destruction of the Temple. You know, and, uh, and so the, uh, the victory of the uh, Maccabees was in some ways short-lived. Yet they were able to preserve the Temple and preserve the worship. You know, and of course the Pharisees were sort of the keeper of the tradition. The Sadducees uh, had uh, collaborated basically with the Romans, and the priesthood became bought and sold. Uh, and, uh, and so Yeshua comes in the middle of all this, right? Uh, so it is kind of interesting that when Yeshua comes, it's like the, it's sort of like, kind of like the Maccabees, coming to preserve the people, coming to save the people, though, from their sins. Not like the Maccabees in that way, but Yeshua, the one whom the Maccabees, we could say we're looking forward to, comes in a most unusual kind of way. Their expectation was that, uh, you know, the Jews would come from the four corners of the earth and, and it would be the, the Olam Haba, right? But it's very interesting because uh, uh, Yeshua uh, tells his disciples, he warned, he's sort of like a warning and an education that, you know, you've heard about the, uh, the you know, the kingdom coming. Well, it's not going to come in exactly the way that you thought, right? So we don't have time, but if you go home and you read in the Gospel of Matthew, the 13th chapter, the 13th chapter, usually it has, it has a title, it's called The Mystery of the Kingdom, The Mystery of the Kingdom. And what that is, it's not like the mysterious, not like Rod Serling's kingdom, you know, or, or something. So we've got a mysterious kingdom. It's truths that had not yet been revealed about this kingdom. This is new revelation. So, for example, what he explains is, is that the kingdom is going to come, and it can actually even be rejected, and that it's going to come concurrent with the world as it is, and that it's going to look really small and insignificant, but it's like a pearl. It's small like a mustard seed, but it's going to grow. And so he is saying that, that this kingdom is coming, but it's not in the way that you expected. Their expectation was what we read in Acts chapter 1. Are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it now 
finally the end, right? And uh, Yeshua says, no, uh, no, you know, only my father knows the, uh, the time of that. But you'll receive power when the Ruach comes upon you. And you'll receive power beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth uh, to share this message of good news of the inauguration of this kingdom uh, that's entered in by repentance. Uh, and you receive the forgiveness of your sins uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, and the beginnings of this uh, world uh, uh, to come. And so it's very interesting because just as the slaves in Egypt were greatly outnumbered, right? But yet there was victory. Just as Saul and Jonathan and the, the Israelites, they were way outnumbered by the Philistines, there was victory. Just as the Maccabees were, you know, it, it's laughable, actually, uh, their, their numbers compared to the Greco-Syrians. Yet there was victory. And so God, throughout Jewish history, has done miracles to preserve our people, our faith, and indeed way of life. Now, something very interesting about the time of the Maccabees, it's not the time of the prophets. Do you know that the, the time of the Maccabees, in certain respects, is kind of like now? Basically, the world, the, the popular worldview in that day was not that God does miracles at all. Uh, it was rationalism. Uh, it was the glorification of humanity. But you see, the Maccabees bucked the trend because if you know that when the Greco-Syrians came and wanted to Hellenize uh, Judea, they had a lot of friends in Judea. There were a lot of Jews who wanted to Hellenize. And when Antiochus Epiphanes IV entered into the temple, he was accompanied by a man named Menelaus, who was a priest, a high priest, who was a Hellenist, and thought this was, this was great news, you see. Uh, and so the Maccabees went against the worldview of their day and trusted and believed uh, in the God of Israel and, and had that victory. And so when you come to Yeshua's day, you, yes, you know, we have kind of tunnel vision when we read, you know, about the, uh, you know, the Pharisees and, and, and what Yeshua did, because the New Covenant scriptures, they're not designed to give us the, you know, the broad worldview and to tell us, the, you know, the history of the day. But that was the history of the day. The history of the day was corruption, great temple corruption. And here Yeshua comes, the light of the world comes in the midst of all of that. And here, here he is. He comes into this world, of course, you know, the incarnate uh, son of God, son of man, right? Uh, who allows himself, uh, you know, to be abused by the powers that be, right? And he dies and he's raised, but he's raised from the dead, that he cannot be held, you know, by, uh, by the power of this world. And then he had, had his followers. It wasn't only 12, but there was not that many people, right? And so again, you have here the remnant of Israel, far outnumbered by everybody else. And here God again does a great miracle. And, and so, you know, in, um, in Acts chapter 4, isn't it great how we can weave it right in here? Okay, so we're up to the place where uh, Peter uh, and John have been threatened. Threatened. Do not speak in this name, right? Uh, do not speak in the name of, uh, of this Nazarene, of, of Yeshua the Nazarene. And remember we talked last week where they said, you can decide whether it's right or wrong, but we must obey God and not man. Right? And we talked about the dedication part of that. And being willing to die and how, 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 how much are we, so to speak, sold out for the Lord, you know, in that way. But, but then we read right after that, okay, uh, here about when they had been released. Now they've been, now they've been threatened, but they're released. Okay. Then it says in verse 23 of Acts 4, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Okay. So, you know, like, get out of town. You know, who knows what those threats were, but they were threats. 
surely threats of imprisonment, maybe threats of death. Uh, we know the history. We know what, what happened to Stephen. We know what uh, Rav Shaul, what Paul was up to, breathing threats, you know, and uh, hauling people into Jerusalem to be judged, uh, and so on. So this, this certainly would have been a very scary, uh, scary time. So what do they do? They respond. It says in verse 24, And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God. They prayed with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who does make the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Okay? So basically, they're quoting a scripture, but it's like a benediction. It's like, pray, you know, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You know? Like, like it's the beginning of a, of, a, of a liturgical even kind of prayer. You are the one who makes everything. You are all powerful, God. That's how they begin the prayer. Okay? who by the Ruach HaKodesh, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, said this. And now what they do is they quote the beginning of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, coronation psalm about the king. Why do the, why do the Gentiles rage? Heathen, uh, pagans, this was referring to. And the peoples uh, devise futile things. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, it'll say in your English translation in Psalm 2, against the anointed, but here it says against, you know, uh, his uh, Messiah, okay? So the beginning of the psalm is, the nations are in an uproar. The nations are devising things. They're going to come. They want to come against us. They want to destroy us, right? You know what the next verse says? I don't have time to turn to Psalm 2. You know what it says in the next verse? God sits in the, sits in the heavens, and what does he do? He laughs, Right? Because he's appointed his king on his holy mountain, right? So they understood this is Yeshua. And so now look at what they say. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against thy holy servant Yeshua, whom thou didst anoint. Now look at Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. So what the way they understand this is in Psalm 2, when it says, you know, they're coming to destroy us. Well, the destroyers couldn't do it, right? Whether it was Herod or Pontius Pilate or all the Gentiles, the, the Romans or the Jews, the Sanhedrin, nobody could hold back Yeshua. And remember, that's what we've been saying, that in, in chapter 2 and 3 and 4, every time when Peter says, you know, this Nazarene, this Yeshua, whom you crucified, he's not pointing his finger at them saying, whom you crucified. He's not doing that. What he's saying is, remember the one whom you think is dead? He is alive. See, he keeps repeating that in, in these speeches. And so here they understand that the enemies who tried to do away with the, with the will of God who tried to be almost like the, likening them a little bit, maybe like to the, to the Greco-Syrians, you know? He calls, the, the, the text says, Gentiles rage, peoples devise futile things, kings of the earth take their stand. But we see how they understand it, that everybody, whether it's the Roman rulers, the Jewish rulers, no matter who it is, tried to destroy him and the plan of God, but nothing can hold him back. And so they say after this, and now, Lord, so it's sort of like the way the prayer goes, first they do this invocation. Like the first, the beginning of it is like this invocation of who God is. And now they're going to pray. Now they're going to ask something in particular. Now, if it was me or if it was you, maybe we would pray, Lord, help us, keep us from dying. Keep us, they have, they have been, uh, you know, issuing threats. Lord, preserve us. Save us, Lord. Don't let anything bad happen to us. Look what they say. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence. In other words, Lord, this is what they're saying. But God, take note of that and give us the confidence and the boldness to speak out this word, 
Nothing can hold us back. Why? Because of Psalm 2. That you have raised up your king. You are at work. And so just as Moses said, don't fear, the Lord is at work while you keep silent, but keep moving forward, right? And just as Jonathan and Saul and the Israelites had to fight, but recognize that no matter how, what the odds are, God's going to get to victory. And just as the Maccabees had to fight, they had to be proactive in what they were doing, right? Yet they realized that God is the one who gives the victory. So the apostles knew that they couldn't stick their heads in the sand and just pray that people come to know the Lord. That in, in the face of threats, they prayed for boldness so that they could continue this work. And so you see like this continuity, you know, uh, in them. And so it goes on here to say, and the congregation of those, oh no, it goes on to say here in verse 3, while you do extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant, Yeshua. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Ruach, filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So God was answering their prayer. Not safety, but speaking the word of God with boldness because they knew that God would get the victory, whether it was through them in particular or through others or whoever it was. God was at work. God would continue to do signs and wonders and miracles and that people would, uh, you know, hear the word of, uh, of God because God was at work. And so uh, clearly we see here, you know, a great, uh, certainly a great word, uh, a great word for us, you know, that no matter, no matter where we're at in our lives, whether we're talking about specifically proclaiming the good news or uh, there are just enemies in our lives of, Whatever it may be, you, you know, uh, difficulties. I'll just put it, difficulties in our lives. We need to be looking, just like the Maccabees did, within a, within a world that really uh, degenerated, um, uh, you know, miracles. We need to be recognizing that God is indeed at work in our lives all the time. We just have to have our eyes open. And hasn't he been at work Truly, in, you know, in the history of the Jewish people, and that there is a Jewish people, and that for uh, you know, almost 2,000 years, wandering around the, the world, being persecuted, maintained a sense of, of self uh, you know, and vision and meaning. And then, of course, against all odds comes the uh, state of Israel. And to this day, uh, we could say that but also in our own lives and our own calling. And so even as a Messianic Jewish community, we might see ourselves as tiny, small, you know, on the margins. We, you know, we always say things like that. But recognize that God is at work. And if God is at work, it doesn't matter the size. It doesn't matter the size of the movement or the size of the congregation or, you know, or, or any of that kind of, or, or what it looks like or any of that. But if God is at work, there will be the victory. And that is a great lesson. When we light our Hanukkah candles, that is a great lesson. So may we never be discouraged. And let me just finish by reading in um, 2 Corinthians, famous passage in chapter 4, Paul talking about himself when he says this, For we do not preach ourselves, but Messiah Yeshua. Wait, remember that. We do not preach ourselves but Messiah Yeshua as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Yeshua's sake, okay? Uh, for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Messiah. So this light is so important to Paul. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Yeshua, that the life of Yeshua 
may be manifested in our body. I mean, he goes on to say, for we, for, uh, we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Yeshua's sake, that the life of Yeshua may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And so, again, you can see like the echo of Hanukkah, the echo of the Maccabees, you know? Uh, the, the Kedush Hashem, uh, recognizing that God is at work. You know, and so may we always indeed be at work. May we always be people who uh, are zealous for uh, the Lord. You know, uh, we read uh, here about what Yeshua did for us, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, like recapturing the temple, purifying for himself a people for his own possession, like purifying the temple, and then zealous for good deeds, dedication, service, all in the power of the Messiah. And so tonight, as we light our Hanukkah menorah, may we be able to be encouraged and to know uh, that God is indeed at work in our midst. And so let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. Uh, God, uh, we thank you, Lord, for uh, the light of Messiah. Uh, Lord, we thank you, God, uh, that Yeshua is with us even to the end of the age and that we are not alone, Lord. We thank you, God, for the encouragement that we have, that we, can, that we remember that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son, the beginning of the Olam Haba. Lord, and in that vein uh, and of what we've been talking about, may we always remember what Paul said in, in Romans 11, I say then God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, they have torn down thine altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, in the same way there will also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Thank you, Lord, that we can be this remnant. And God, may we make a difference in all of Israel and indeed all of the world. We thank you and pray in Messiah's name.